the idea of kneeling. It's, you see, slaughtering all those men has uh, left a nasty crack in my leg, so kneeling will be hard for me. There will be no glory in your sacrifice. I will erase even the memory of Sparta from the histories. Every piece of Greek parchment shall be burned. Every Greek historian and every scribe shall have their eyes put out and their tongues cut for their mouths. Why, honoring the very name of Sparta or Leonidas will be punishable by death. The world will never know you existed at all. The world will know that free men stood against a tyrant that few stood against many. And before this battle was over, that even a god-king can bleed.
crazy. Sure. And and you have gotten you have elicited a lot of a lot of threats. hate. Yes. Mail and, and yes. threats. And, and not only me. Unfortunately, this is this is extended uh, to my faculty for uh, to my uh, coworkers at, at John Jay to the staff there. But what uh, did you expect when you put something out there like that? You know, when you put well, so something out there, and it it, it just it, it yes, seems so from me, an outside observer. No, no. Let me let me ask a question. Sure. It seems from an outside observer that you are just trying to get confirmation and reassurance from a group of people that you want to like you, and those are the people online who share your political views. No, so so why would you be surprised that if you put something out there on social media that someone who is either intrigued or alarmed by you goes through your tweets and finds something which is now a public record sure, me, and and presents it to the public? Sure. Why would that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me, um, but what, and it doesn't surprise me that this whole happened. I mean, this is this is a, a pattern that has been a coordinated attack, not against just me, but against professors all over. No, the but country. you are you are an easy person to dislike. I mean, no, I'm I'm an easy person to target by fascists. That's why this organization called Far Left Watch is going through my tweets, uh, finding tweets from three weeks back, and I don't know if you've gone through my it's Twitter. Not that far. I mean, I, well, I have people who go online I, and find stuff I that I wrote in, in 2012. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and they take that as though it's it's a it's a modern day and they abstract exactly. things. Right. And this but is that happens three, three and ago. that's the name of the game. So this is this is what I challenge you to do. Mm. Because it's one thing to be a professor at a college mm. and say that it's a privilege to teach future dead cops. As someone who has cops in my family, mm. I'm offended by that because the people I know who are cops, they have kids. Are they, are they immortal? They have mortgages. Are they immortal? No, don't give me a nihilistic argument because that's not what you're saying. You're not immortal? saying everybody dies. Privilege means that there is some joy that you take. I do take joy in teaching my and, students. And I love knowing, my students. And knowing that these people these will be assassinated want, in the I, I mean, that's them. the ultimate goal. I want these you students. don't have to be a genius to I want discern the subtext I of your tweets. I want my students to actually be able to do what they want, which is help people. And I don't think policing is an institution that allows them to do that. Yeah, if you I were, want to see them become social workers. I want to see them become uh, EMTs. Then, I want to become, then go see them work for firefighters. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily subversive for you to teach economics at a school that specializes in criminology. I know where John Jay is. Right. Uh, and they've got a great pool that no one uses. It's, it's a, a wonderful college. <laughs> but if you were so brave, if you were so subversive, if you were so committed to your movement, which I don't think you are. I think there's actually a great deal of cowardice that runs through you. You would become a cop. I don't see the logic there. If you really wanted to work within the system, I don't want to, to work undo the, the thing that, that you say is so unjust. I, I absolutely then do not you would work, become a I cop. I do not want to work within the system. I am an anarcho-capitalist or an anarcho-communist. I, I do not want to work within the system. I want to tear the system down root and branch. The police serve the weapons industry and the prison industry, and they are put in this awful position of having to uh, fire more, their weapons more often because their training videos are telling them to do so, uh, and having to criminalize the entire population because it's profit for the prison industry now, what and profit about for the weapons. Industry. Okay, so I want it, like, the, the problem that we have is that government infrastructure at, at its core is run by private companies for profit, not in the interest of the American people. I don't think you have the interest of the American people because I, I think that do. you've lived in a bubble for so long. I disagree. You don't actually know people. I teach you, you people don't, are playing to be you don't have any about a bubble. Rational. Yeah, I'm, not, and, I'm not on a TV, I'm not on a TV show in, on Fox News. I'm talking to people who that's are thinking because about because you wouldn't be good at cops. it. I mean, that's that's the unfortunate reality is is you wouldn't be able to handle that, nor if you were attacked by someone. 
I think the first thing you would do is call 911. I, I don't. Disagree. I don't think you have the ability to physically defend yourself. Okay. I think that if you were threatened, if you were attacked, I read that you have gone into hiding, which I did you know, not. Obviously not, because you are here. <laughs> yeah, no, I was. But I, I, was, I think I was you, are, you are the first person so, who would call. No, um, the police. Absolutely not. I would call my friends. Uh, the ones who are cops that no, you've taught, no, the ones, betrayed the ones with that your are tweets, with my Antifa, like my claiming, Antifa friends who actually claiming are able to, to be a rational professor, teaching rational an entire generation of people who For were sure. inspired by cops and firefighters who died on 9/11. Those kind of people. What? <laughs> exactly. I don't even. I don't like. I don't understand what point you're making here. That that like, am I am I supposed to? To tell my students, yes, you should you should uh, become a police officer so that you can have a gun uh, at all times and possibly kill someone. I don't think that that's a good thing. No, I, I think your hope I, and and you have I would revealed love, I would your love intention them to become firefighters. I, I think I think uh, I, I think your intention is to teach as many cops, have as many of them get on the street as possible, so they can be assassinated, and that would bring no, you completion and great joy. I want to see them actually fighting in their own interests if they do choose to become police officers, advocating for the demilitarization of the police, advocating against the increasing criminalization of the population, because at the end of the day, uh, that puts them at danger. Yeah, you know what, you can do all of those things, and, and you can have logical discussions about all those things. I do pretty much every night on the show. We talk about okay. decriminalizing, we talk about demilitarizing, okay. and you can do that without advocating violence. I don't, and without I, being a part of an organization that takes pleasure and harming people whose ideas run counter to yours. This is not about people whose ideas run counter to ours. These are about people who actively want to politically organize to eliminate large sections of our population. That's the straw man that That's you're employing because man. you These don't just you don't just show up at neo-Nazi rallies. That's not the only place that Antifa shows up. And you are not like uh, a vigilante group who's going around keeping we're little old ladies group. safe. Like I said, we're not a vigilante group. No, we you... work very closely with the communities that we end up showing up with. And, and that's why, that's why, for instance, this weekend, where I was majority, at the Juggalo you know March what? in public, um, we showed up to the Juggalo March and we were completely peaceful because that was what was requested of us. And you also would probably get the living crap beat out of no. you, but also the, the communities you purport to represent, by and large, a vast majority of them support police. It's not true. They're, they're not, no, it it's is not true. true. If you, if you look at data, Republicans, Democrats, independents. Okay, but what about the, the poor communities who are, who are constantly under the threat of police violence? What about communities, uh, in, in this city, in this very city, in New York City, um, whose, whose entire apartment complexes are designated as gangs and, and put up, uh, and, and the police, uh, at, uh, engage in gang, in these gang raids, uh, to, to, uh, to, again, these empty, are, these, and valuable conversations so to have to be on the frontier you, of gentrification like at the end of the day we have a police a police institution that serves the interests of capital yeah. at the Are you going to get your job back state. at John Jay? I don't know. I really hope I do. Are you on paid leave or unpaid leave? I am on paid leave. Paid or unpaid? Paid. Just, paid. Like, just like a cop who killed somebody. Just like Don, and hopefully like Dan Pantaleo who choked Eric Garner I get my job back and get a promotion. Mm. All right. Well, good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Good morning, boys and girls. Hi, Jesus. Today we're gonna talk about America. America? What's that? America's a place that existed long ago.
Welcome to America. We the biggest gang on the planet. Think we ain't shit. Why you think them gangs call it black? And if we want it, then we take it. When we take it, we ain't asking. This is basic like a t-shirt. We American savage. vindication for a candidate who had climbed back from a bitter public humiliation. We're talking about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Tonight, it's an annual event right Donald here. Trump has been... It happened in April 2011 at one of Washington, D.C.'s most glamorous nights.
I got to talk to Donald as we were going to our seats. And he was in just such a great mood, and he was very jovial, and people were taking pictures, and it was very exciting that Donald was there. And Trump's invitation to the exclusive gathering came after weeks of attacking President Barack Obama on television. You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country. But there's something on that person, maybe religion, maybe it says he's a Muslim, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want that, or he may not have one. But I will tell you this, if he wasn't born in this country, it's one of the great scams of uh, Absolutely. But that night, in front of Washington's journalists, politicians, and power brokers, Obama would hit back. President Obama takes the microphone. All right, everybody, please have a seat. Donald Trump is here tonight and proceeds to fillet Donald publicly. No one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? I was sitting 20 feet from him and just the look of discomfort on his face. What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? Donald's face was so incredibly serious. It was so incredibly just, he just put on a poker face. I was two tables away from Trump. The conventional way in Washington of absorbing a joke at the White House Correspondents' Dinner is to keep your chin up and at least pretend to have a sense of humor about it, even if you go cry into your pillow that night. Trump was steaming. His face was all locked in. He was not having a good time. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. And he's being treated like a pinata by the President of the United States. And I think he felt humiliated. Well handled, sir. Well handled. But it just kept going and going, and he just kept hammering him. And I thought, oh, Barack Obama is starting something that I don't know if he'll be able to finish. Say what you will about uh, Mr. Trump, he certainly would bring some change to the White House. Let's see what we've got up there. Donald dreads humiliation, and he dreads shame. And, and this is why he often attempts to humiliate and shame other people. So in the case of the president ridiculing him, I think this was intolerable for Donald Trump. I think that is the night that he resolves to run for president. I think that he is kind of motivated by it. 
maybe I'll just run. Maybe I'll show them all. Every critic, every detractor will have to bow down to President Trump. It's everyone who's ever doubted Donald, whoever disagreed, whoever challenged him. It is the ultimate revenge to become the most powerful man in the universe. God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. Donald Trump's fantasy is to be the guy who takes the key to the Oval Office from Barack Obama's hand in 2017. And, and it's personal. This is, this is a burning personal need that he has to redeem himself from being humiliated by the first black president. Hillary Clinton had spent decades laying the groundwork for her candidacy. With humility, determination, and boundless confidence in America's promise that I accept your nomination for President of the United States. Her entrance into politics had been difficult, marked by questions of just who she was. What kind of plans have you made to be First Lady of Arkansas? Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the kinds of work that we want to do. Um, In Little Rock, the new First Lady, Hillary Rodham, was a curiosity. We haven't made any final plans. We hope to be Hillary. When she first got there, everybody makes such a big deal out of her hippie uh, flowered pants and her big, you know, strange glasses and her crazy hair. Could it be that you have political aspirations of your own? No, I just uh, think it's, imp I don't have any except uh, for my husband, who I think is a terrific politician and a wonderful man. Arkansas has a new governor. And they looked like they were having more. I mean, it was really a heady experience. These were young people. They were the governor and first lady. The youngest governor in the United States now, young Governor Clinton of the state of Arkansas. But Hillary's approach to her new role was seen as unconventional. She kept her maiden name and had her own career as a corporate lawyer. She didn't want women to be accessories to their husband, and that is usually what a political wife is, is an accessory to her husband, and it didn't fit well. The thought occurs to me that you really don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas. You're not a native. Um, you've been educated in liberal eastern universities. You're less than 40. You don't have any children. You don't use your husband's name. You practice law. Does it concern you that maybe other people feel that you don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas? No, because each person should be uh, assessed and judged on, uh, you know, that person's own merits. The and Southerners just really rejected this, you know, uppity woman from, you know, East Coast. And she doesn't dress right. She doesn't talk right. She doesn't, her hair isn't right. You know, she's just no credit. She's not a Southern uh, governor's wife. We now have a clarification in the state of Arkansas. Final the governor's term was only two years, and before he knew it, Bill Clinton was out. This political defeat has been a bitter pill to swallow for Bill Clinton. I regret that I will not have two more years to serve as governor, because I have loved it. And here, Bill Clinton defeated and to be rendered uh, uh, a beaten 
uh, pair at that age was was pretty devastating. Thank you very much. And God bless you. Hillary, with their new daughter Chelsea, took it hard. She understood that that she was part of the reason for him losing the governor's race because she wouldn't take his name and and just because of the way she was. Hillary decided to fight. She took charge of her husband's political comeback. Hillary got very involved in the campaign. Uh, for all intents and purposes, she was the campaign manager. One of her first moves, rebrand herself and become Mrs. Clinton. It was symbolic. Uh, I'm sure she had to swallow hard, uh, but it was just not worth trying to uh, keep her last name at the expense of everything they wanted to achieve together. In order to avoid any problem and just to put it to rest, I will uh, forever be known as uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. And she completely forfeited her own identity, at, at least physically. Got rid of the glasses, got her hair dyed, started dressing at least modestly better, wore some makeup, cultivated a little bit of a drawl. The road to being somebody in this society starts with education. The transformation was a surprise to some of those who had known her the longest. When she had to begin to change her appearance, dye her hair, lose a lot of weight, get rid of her glasses, not speak up, not be as, as much who she was, that hurt all of us. We all felt bad about that. It was, it was hard. It was hard on us. It was hard on her. She formed an alliance with a controversial political consultant from New York, Dick Morris. She has a wonderful instinct for the jugular. She felt that he'd lost it because he wasn't tough enough, wasn't strong enough. And she reached out to me because she felt that I would be stronger and tougher. I think it only intensified and began a lot of the characteristics that you saw from then on, that the ends justify the means, that we'll do what we have to do to win, turn to the dark arts of politics to survive. Hillary helped engineer a comeback that returned her husband to the governorship and put her in the national spotlight for the next 34 years. Back in the 1940s, just across the East River from Manhattan, Donald Trump grew up in a posh suburb called Jamaica Estates. It's perhaps typical of New York's residential areas. The Trump family had a huge house in Queens that they used to refer to as Tara. It had nine bedrooms, it had columns, it was quite beautiful, but it was in Queens. The Trump family would spend 50 years building memories here. Fred Trump, a real estate developer, designed the house himself 
and raised Donald and his brothers and sisters in luxury. It's not like he knew anything but comfort. When it rained and he had to deliver his papers, the chauffeur would take him around. But Donald's father was tough and insisted everyone learn the family business. He was a guy who worked seven days a week. It's Sunday, why wouldn't you be working? And would, even on the weekends, would pile the kids in the car and go to a building site, pick up old nails that weren't used. Why would you waste a nail? Fred Trump was a machine. I mean, he was a human machine. He was driven beyond whatever the description of driven could ever mean. And when you look at the picture of Fred and you look at Donald, you see the great resemblance between the two. And when you think about Fred's energy, you see how it is channeled through Donald. Fred was seen as passionate about the business, but not warm with his children. Cold. He was not a warm person. I see his father at the beach, even with a suit and a tie and a hat, a clipped, very kind of military mustache and simply being correct. Fred had theories. He shared them with his kids. Donald especially liked one of them. Uh, this is a very deep part of the Trump story. The family subscribes to a racehorse theory of human development, that they believe that there are superior people and that if you put together the genes of a superior woman and a superior man, you get a superior offspring. Fred's other theory? Life was a competition. There were winners and there were losers. He called the winners killers. The way the game got played in his household was, if you did not win, you lost. And losing was you got crushed. Losing was you didn't matter. Losing was you were nothing. Donald took the lessons to heart, always tried to be the winner. But he was also a handful. His brother Robert, who's very discreet, told me that Donald was always the kid in the family who would start throwing birthday cake at all the parties, that you would build up a tower of blocks, he would come knock your blocks down. This is the person he's been, I think, since he was five years old. Donald told me that he is essentially the person he was in first grade and that he hasn't really changed. His self-definition was built around the idea that he was one tough son of a bitch. That meant in classrooms, that meant with teachers, that meant with his father. By the seventh grade, even Fred had had it with Donald's mischief. He sent him up the Hudson River, just a few miles from West Point, to the toughest boarding school he could find, the New York Military Academy. You have to think of this 13-year-old kid who's lived a very comfortable life, but then all of a sudden, he's the one child of five to be banished to this austere life, goodbye luxury, goodbye mom and dad, brothers and sisters, hello drill sergeant. The New York Military Academy was no nonsense, heavy on the discipline. Over the years, home to the children of gangster John Gotti and Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista. 
very austere, very scary place. I was homesick. I was crying hysterically. In fact, I was crying so much the first couple of nights to put me in the infirmary. We were in a culture of hazing at the military school. Everyone, I mean, that's just the way it was. You got hit, you might have gotten slammed against the wall. You got put artificially into fights. But the rough and tumble didn't seem to bother Donald. He thrived. He liked it. Apparently, he really liked it. He liked the accountability. He liked the kind of clarity of it. And he liked that there was a medal and a prize for everything. He was a star athlete. He claimed he could have played pro baseball. But his classmates agree he was proudest of winning the ultimate accolade in an all-boys school. He was named ladies' man in the school yearbook. Hugh Hefner, the publisher of Playboy, was a role model for many of the boys. Yeah, I, you know, he had a very Hugh Hefner Playboy magazine view of success. The young cadets learned a lot from Playboy magazine and what they called barracks talk. In fact, our biggest advice in, you know, our lives came from Playboy magazine. That's how we learned about women. So that was all of my adolescence. And that's why getting out of military school was difficult. You had to realize that you couldn't just follow the Playboy philosophy. They would graduate and grow up. But Donald's classmates say in some ways he hasn't changed at all. The things that we talked about at that time in 1964 really are very close to the kind of way he talks now. I hear these echoes of, of the barracks life that we had and that we grew out of. Back when Donald Trump was growing up in Queens, Hillary Rodham was living a short train commute from downtown Chicago. Hugh and Dorothy Rodham moved from Chicago, the tough city, into the all-white new suburb of 1950s America. And I remember men walking home from work from the train station with their cigarettes dangling and their Chicago American evening newspaper under their arm. They called Park Ridge an idyllic American suburb. Hillary has said her life was straight out of the 1950s sitcom Father Knows Best. But the truth was much more complicated. Inside the Rodham family, Hillary's father Hugh was a staunchly conservative and demanding presence. Hugh and Hillary always had a relationship that had its difficulties. Hillary goes to a school and makes straight A's, and he says, that must be a really easy school if you got straight A's. I mean, gets no credit for her effort, no credit for her work. With Hillary's mom, Dorothy, the treatment was worse. Her father was abusive verbally and dismissive when her mother and father would have this tense, demeaning discussions, and Hillary would run to her room and put her hands over her ears and, and say, I can't stand listening to this. There was a lot of fighting in the uh, Rodham household, and I don't think she invited many friends home. That's when her whole penchant for secrecy and privacy began. Dorothy had had to overcome a difficult childhood of her own. I think the resilience of Dorothy Rodham 
This little girl born to 16-year-old parents who did not want her and did not love her. They never showed her any affection, never hugged her, never kissed her. And I think it would have defeated most people. Dorothy was determined to give Hillary a better life. I think that Dorothy was frustrated, like many, many women of that era. She had far more uh, abilities, talents, and intelligence than, than the world or her relationship with her husband allowed her to show. And I think that uh, she poured a lot of that ambition into her daughter. Outside the home, in room 224 at Eugene Field Elementary School, they saw that ambition early on. Betsy Ebling became her best friend. I was the new girl in class. And somebody else in the classroom said to me, you know, you're very lucky. You're sitting across from Hillary Rodham. And I said, yeah, she seems very nice. And she said, no, she's captain of the crossing guards. So, see, I knew then that she was destined for great things. Captain of the crossing guards. But in the 1950s, her classmates believed a girl who was a star could only rise so high. I remember a class prophecy in the sixth grade that Hillary would be married to a U.S. senator. Nobody could wrap their mind around a woman having that kind of achievement, you know? But the world of Hillary and her friends was changing. At the Methodist Church, a new minister arrived. A youth minister named Don Jones, then about 26 years old, arrives in a red Impa Chevy Impala convertible and becomes really the most influential, certainly male figure, almost as a counterweight to Hillary's father. Don Jones was good looking, he was young, it was just contrary to everything that we'd ever had in church, any church, right? In the conservative Republican community of Park Ridge, Jones was controversial, introducing Hillary and her youth group to progressive ideas. One Sunday, he did just that when he took them into downtown Chicago. And he took Hillary and some of her friends to hear Martin Luther King speak. It was at the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, you know, which was, it still is, at the Symphony Hall in Chicago. You were dressed up, you know, you wore white gloves, and yeah, oh yeah, you went down. It was a big, big event. Indeed, the revolution is taking place in our world today. It is sweeping away an old order. Here's this black man from the South who's talking about segregation. She didn't even know what segregation was. Taking the real eyes of slavery and segregation, the strange paradoxes in a nation found around the principle that all men are created equal. Betsy says she and Hillary would never forget the moment. It was something very deep inside Martin Luther King that is not just moving, but life-altering. And the words that came out were so profoundly affecting that you left feeling more fulfilled in many ways and more empty in many ways than you had before. The old order is passing away. A new order is coming in to be. God grant that we will use the moment. As a young man, Donald Trump grew up hearing the gospel of success at the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan. 
the Marble Collegiate Church with Norman Vincent Peale as the minister. He preached the gospel of success. Success was not only okay, it was a really good idea and you should actually do it. The God who made this world was a wise Norman Vincent Peale had sold millions of copies of his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. He wants people who live life and like it. The church was a place to be seen for leaders of business, socialites, politicians. Donald's father made sure to expose him to Norman Vincent Peale. It was consistent with his father's ambition. How then can you face the future with confidence? It elevates capitalism, honors wealth, wholly consistent with who Donald Trump wanted to be and who he became. By being one hundred percent alive. Donald Trump learned this notion that through the power of positive thinking, you could focus your life on your business and your achievements in the business world would be the measure of your success. You are endowed with the tremendous powers of God and you may have trouble with it, but you can handle it. Following Peel's method, Donald graduated from Wharton School of Finance and Commerce and joined the family real estate business as an apprentice to his father. It was a job Donald's older brother, they called him Freddie, had once held and then lost. Fred Jr. worked for his dad, but he showed little aptitude and really not that much interest in the business. He, by all accounts, tried. But he, it wasn't him. He wasn't hyper-aggressive. He wasn't hyper-competitive. Unlike his father, Freddie was friendly and outgoing. But his dad thought he didn't measure up. Marianne, who was working for her father during the summers, told me that his father never praised Freddie. He was always thought, he, he treated him like somebody who was a loser. His father told the boys to be killers, but Freddie was never a killer. Freddie had always loved flying. He struck out on his own to pursue his dream. He became an airline pilot. What Donald told me at the time was that he and his father had perhaps been way too hard on him. They used to say to him, because he was an airline pilot, what's the difference between what you do, Freddie, and driving a bus? Freddie started to drink heavily. Fred Jr., his death, at a young age, he was in his 40s, was formative for Donald, and I think it was shocking for their family. He was a guy who struggled with alcoholism for a long time. For Donald, Freddie's story was a lesson he would never forget. He said, Freddie just wasn't a killer. I think he saw his brother as being intimidated by his father. So he set himself out to be the very opposite of that with his father and with everybody else that he dealt with for the rest of his life. By the mid-1960s, Hillary Rodham was a student at Wellesley College. She is now living a life that is not dictated by her parents, but is affected by what's going on in America at the time. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King. The apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was standing on the balcony. That was a huge event for her. 
And she came into her dorm room. She threw her handbag against the wall. She said, I can't stand it anymore. They've killed him. They've killed him. Who? Martin. My thanks to all of you. And now it's on to Chicago. Two months later, Senator Robert Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles. Then, tensions over the Vietnam War erupted at the Democratic Convention in downtown Chicago. Here's this convention going on, right? And Hillary said, we have to go see it. And she and I told my, our mothers that we were going to the movies. And we drove my family station wagon downtown, <laughs> parked. I have no idea where we parked. I had never driven downtown. Thousands of Chicago police confronted anti-war protesters. As Betsy and Hillary waded into the crowd, they saw an old high school friend. She was there volunteering, patching up heads. And said, you gotta be aware of this and everything that's going on. It was chaotic, it was mayhem, but it was also almost beautiful in its portrayal of like, opened up this road and said, this is where you're going. And this is why. She knew she was gonna go back to Wellesley. And she would find people of like thinking of of this war has to end. She had become much more political, as frankly had most of us. Uh, you couldn't really go through those years and all the tumult in America and not be affected by it. One year later. Her classmates selected Hillary, the first student at Wellesley, to give a commencement address. The Republican senator from Massachusetts, Edward Brooke, spoke first. At the commencement, he gives a speech that is really kind of condescending. Senator Brooke basically told us that the people who are protesting are kind of like elite uh, ne'er-do-wells. So I can remember sitting in my seat um, just fuming. I mean, this is my college graduation, and I am just fuming. And, you know, we're just, all of us were just ready to pop. Hillary was scribbling notes all through his speech. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and Hillary Rodham is rising from her seat and walking to the, mo to the podium. And it is a great pleasure to present to this audience Ms. Hillary Rodham. I find myself in a familiar position, that of reacting something that our generation has been doing for quite a while now. And she began with a complete, utterly um, articulate rebuttal of everything Senator Brooke had said. She was going to say what we all wanted to say. For too long, our leaders have viewed politics as the art of the possible. And the challenge now is to practice politics as the art of making what appears to be impossible possible. The speech turned Hillary Rodham into a national celebrity. She was called a voice of her generation. Life magazine picks it up and profiles her, and she likes the attention. That was the, probably the first time that Hillary felt what it would be like to be a political leader. And she thought then, well, maybe I can someday be a larger figure on the political stage. For Hillary, that meant law school. She applied and was accepted by one of the nation's top law schools, Yale. A lot of very ambitious, 
people who wanted to change the course of American history were at Yale Law School in that period. Among them, her friend Robert Reich, Clarence Thomas, and Bill Clinton. They were all in Professor Thomas Emerson's civil liberties class. I remember that every time Professor Emerson asked a question, Hillary was the first hand in the air. And when he called on her, she always got the answer exactly right. Uh, I was about the second or third hand of the air, and I half the time got the answer right. Bill Clinton missed most of the classes, as I remember. I think he was off doing political work, and Clarence Thomas never said a word. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was sort of a, 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 a kind of a metaphor for where we were all heading and what we all, how we all prioritized our lives. For the group at the law school, it seemed inevitable that one day Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham would get together. When they meet, uh, Hillary's the one who's the celebrity. Hillary is the one who's been in, in Life magazine. Uh, Bill is dazzled. Hillary, from the beginning, fell into the spell of Bill Clinton's charisma. And Clinton saw in Hillary a woman who was his equal or better in terms of intelligence and ambition. And I think very early on in their relationship, they saw that they could get someplace together that they might not get too apart. But after graduating, a separation. Bill headed back home to Arkansas. Hillary took a job in Washington. In the early 70s, Donald Trump headed out of Queens into Manhattan. From the very first time I met Trump, I thought of Saturday Night Fever and Travolta. He was the kid who grew up as a outsider to where the real action was. And he was acutely aware of it. Always had his eye on what he thought was a glamorous, Hollywoodish life. And that was the life of Manhattan. I think if you had to pick sort of three stereotypes that are probably constantly tap dancing in Donald's mind and in his imagination of himself, it's Clint Eastwood, James Bond, and Hugh Hefner. He's really spreading his wings when he comes to Manhattan. Well, I think he's having the time of his life. Uh, he is, uh, he's a bachelor. Uh, he's an eligible bachelor. Donald frequented the city's hottest places. He met Nikki Haskell, the host of an underground cable show about the party scene. When I saw Donald, nobody knew who he was. He was just a young, very aggressive, smart boy. Hot shot, so to speak. Someone that had big dreams. And that's what this town is built on. All right, what's going on? During the day, he worked hard to do something his father never did, break into Manhattan real estate. He's a kid who wants to figure out how to make deals, to figure out how to establish a presence for himself in Manhattan. And he's right to believe that that's not easy to do. He needed a mentor. He found one in Roy Cohn, the notorious New York lawyer. Well, he was savage. Cohn had a, an incredible reputation for being uh, a tough, tough guy. 
The scene is Washington and a Senate investigating subcommittee. Mr. Cohn, his friend and aide, was present with Senator McCarthy to answer... Cohn had become famous during the McCarthy hearings, a witch hunt that accused Americans of communist sympathies. He delighted in the fact that he had ruined so many lives in the McCarthy era. Detailed testimony in that in the record, Mr. Chairman, of Levitsky's association, close personal association with Julius Rosenberg over a period of years. Roy Cohn humiliated people. He made up things. He had no morals. You couldn't even say that he had the morals of a snake. He had no morals. He had no moral center. Everyone knows the most famous legal legal, my pal and yours, Roy Cohn. Good evening, Nikki. How are you? Roy was like a street guy, you know, he was like, punch, you punch me, I'll punch you. And I think he made Donald very confrontational. And I think you had that sort of tough guy, don't take any kind of, you know, bull from anybody kind of an attitude. And I think a lot of that, you know, he instilled in Donald. And in his drawer, he had a picture of Roy. And it was a grainy black and white picture. And Roy looked like the devil. And he would pull it out and he would say, this is my lawyer. If we can't make an agreement, this is who's going, who you're going to be dealing with. Well, I suppose In 1973, Trump hired Cohn to defend him and his father. They had been sued by the federal government for discriminating against black renters looking for apartments in their buildings. The lawsuit revealed that uh, Trump agents allegedly were writing down C for colored or number nine to indicate a black uh, prospective tenant. And those people were often turned away. And Trump asked him for advice. What do I do? Do I settle? And Roy Cohn said, never settle. Roy Cohn said, you need to fight back harder than they ever hit you. At a press conference and in court filings, Trump and Cohn claimed they were the victims. He comes right back with a $100 million lawsuit, which was filed by Roy Cohn. And that was Roy Cohn's signature kind of thing. You tell me one other instance. Roy Cohn taught Donald how to come out punching, how to use lawsuits like machine gun bullets, and take a no-prisoners approach to City Hall, to your business opponents, uh, to anyone else who might get in your way. And I think Donald reveled in that. But with damning evidence of racial discrimination, the company was forced to settle. Nevertheless, Donald didn't admit any wrongdoing and even declared the outcome a victory. This is a classic example of where Trump begins to demonstrate something he talks about all the time today, which is he's a counterpuncher. So somebody comes out after him and says that he's done something nefarious and horrible, and he just goes back at them with all guns blazing. You know, boom, boom, boom. And admits nothing, never admit anything, Never say you made a mistake, just keep coming. And if you lose, declare victory. And that's exactly what happened there. He lost as clearly as you can lose, but he loudly proclaimed his victory. Fresh from Yale Law School, Hillary Rodham arrived in Washington. A city gripped by political scandal she was at the center of it, an attorney on the Watergate Committee. What did the president know, and when did he know it? As the committee dug into allegations of presidential crimes, Hillary and the other staff were sworn to secrecy. Hillary was working on a committee where I think she probably learned a lot about secrecy and how you 
really needed to preserve it in political life more than anywhere else. Hillary worked in a secure location and was taught how to operate in complete secrecy. We'd get together and Hillary never said a word about anything. She said they were working really hard and they had lots of things to do. It was remarkable. They were remarkably closed-mouthed. Good evening. President Nixon reportedly will announce his That summer, tonight. President Richard Nixon resigned. The president now at the door. A final wave. As the committee shut down, Hillary had a number of high-powered opportunities in Washington, but she had a secret of her own. Lo and behold, she fails the D.C. bar exam and is devastated by it. Hanging her head uh, a bit at this terrible failure uh, that she won't speak about uh, and doesn't reveal. And she kept it a secret for, for 30 years. Hillary would write about her failure in her book, Living History. When I learned that I had passed in Arkansas but failed in D.C., I thought that maybe my test scores were telling me something. She said she believed it was a sign that she should move to Arkansas to be with Bill. She told her landlord and friend Sarah Ehrman about her decision. She said, I'm going to Arkansas to be with my boyfriend. My reaction was uh, very uh, skeptical because she had a, a tremendous future ahead of her. She was a star. I thought, she's going down there to Arkansas. Nobody goes to Arkansas. And what? I said, you're not going to go down there. They don't have French bread. They don't have breathe. What are you going to do down there? She could have done anything with her life. She could have been a powerhouse in and of her own self in Washington, D.C. And yet she makes this very interesting and life-changing decision. She is going to be part of Bill Clinton's political career. I said, I'll drive you. Get in the car and I'll drive you. We got to Fayetteville and uh, it was the uh, Arkansas-Texas football day and the whole city was full of Arkansas wearing pig hats. Apparently, the pig is the uh, a mascot. And they were saying, suey, suey, pig, pig, pig. And I began to cry. Very sad. Her friends from Yale Law School couldn't believe this was where Hillary was going to end up. We go to this dinner in a church hall. We're sitting there talking and jabbering. And, and then Bill gets up to leave the table. He says, well, we're going to go talk politics. So I get up. And Hillary says, sit down. And I said, what? She said, the men go to talk politics. And I looked around, and everyone left at the table were women. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, this is really bad. I said, Hillary. This is not, this is not good. But Hillary decided to make...